Hello and welcome back to the perfect puzzle. We are embarking on a study that's going to have a lot of information for you. So it's going to take a, a few sessions to get it done. Maybe more than a few. I just want to forewarn you before we you decide to invest in, in this. Hopefully I will get your creative juices flowing. Uh, my purpose here, if anything else, is to get you to think about what you believe about God, God the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because I think, I believe, not think, I believe there's more to it than your church probably tells you. I will tell you this also. You're not going to find this teaching in any of the mainstream churches. If you're a Baptist, if you're Roman Catholic, if you're Greek Orthodox, if you are Eastern Orthodox, if you are Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, you're not going to get this teaching because there is so much tradition and history into those. But we're going back to what the early church fathers actually believed. And I'm going to prove that as, as we go forward through these studies. Uh, the churches have gotten away from it, but that's a subject for another study. We're going to jump right in. This is the perfect puzzle. Acts 17.11 is always in play where you're encouraged to check these things out for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Uh, in fact, I encourage it, and I encourage feedback from each and every listener that I have. My email address you can contact me at is on the front page. Uh, it's in the uh, information about the podcast, and I encourage you to ask your questions. As we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, as we get into what I believe you want taught to your children, that you would open our hearts, minds, body and spirit, Father, to your, to the teaching of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to lead us and guide us in our learning, and that you help us come out of this study a more understanding Christian than we were when we went in. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've had a brief introduction in section one to God's heavenly counsel. That's his unseen family and his task force. There's a lot more to all of that, and we need to look especially at how major players like Jesus and Satan fit into the picture. But before we return to what goes on in the unseen world, we need to think in a fresh way about ourselves. God's rule in the unseen spiritual world through his counsel is a template for his rule on earth. It's what theologians today call the kingdom of God. Now, all of that began in the Garden of Eden. Now, when I say Garden of Eden, or when you hear that, what's the first thing you think about? Most people that I talk to think of Adam and Eve. Eden was their home. That's where God put them back in Genesis chapter 2. But Eden was also God's home. Ezekiel refers to Eden as the Garden of God in Ezekiel chapter 28 and in Ezekiel chapter 31. That's not a surprise, really. What might be surprising is that right after calling Eden the Garden of God, Ezekiel calls it 
the holy mountain of God. And that's in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14. In many ancient religions, luxurious gardens and inaccessible mountains were considered the home of the gods. The Bible uses both descriptions for Eden. Eden was God's home, and therefore it's where he conducted business. You might say it was his home office, and where God is, his counsel is with him. Now, one of the most important verses in the Bible tips us off that both God and his counsel were in Eden. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image. Now, God here is announcing his intention to a, to a group. But who's he talking to? Now, Bible commentaries of all denominations are going to tell you this is the first indication of the Trinity in Scripture. And I used to believe that same thing myself. But it can't be true because God the Father can't know something that God the Son or God the Holy Spirit don't already know. So who's he talking to? He's talking to his heavenly host, his council. And here the group he's, he's talking to learns what God has decided to do. The announcement is easy to understand. It would be like me saying to some friends, let's, let's go get pizza. Let's do this. It's clear enough. But there's something else we don't want to miss. God actually does not include the group in bringing about his decision. Unlike other divine council sessions that we've talked about, the members of God's council don't participate in this decision. When humankind is created in Genesis 1.27, God is the only one creating. The creation of humanity is something God handled himself. If you go back to my analogy of let's go get a pizza, if I followed my announcement by driving everyone to the pizza place and then insisted on paying, I would be the one doing all the work. So that's what we see going on here with God. And it makes sense that God would be the only one creating humans. The divine beings of his council don't have that kind of power. And that produces another oddity. In Genesis 1.27, humans are created in God's image. As it says, God created man in his image. So let me ask you this. What happened to our image in verse 26? All of a sudden it goes in from our image to his image. Well, actually nothing. The exchange between our the, the change there between our image and his image reveals something fascinating though. <clears throat> God's statement, <clears throat> let us make a humankind in our image, means that he and the ones he's speaking to share something in common. Whatever that is, humans will also share it once God creates them. Not only are we like God in some way, but we are also like the divine beings of his counsel. And that something that we're like is communicated by the phrase, image of God. Now, a better translation of Genesis 1.26 would be that God created humans as his image. See, to be human is to be God's imager. 
We are God's representative in a manner of speaking. Now, the image of God isn't an ability given to us by God like intelligence. We can lose our abilities, but we can't lose the status of being God's imager because that would require us not being human. Every human, from conception to death, will always be human and will always be God's imager. That's why human life is sacred. So how do we represent God? We saw last time, you know, God shares his, his authority with the divine beings of his unseen task force. And he does the same thing with humans on earth. God is the high king of all things visible and invisible. He is the ruler. He rules. He shares that rule with his family in the spiritual world. And he shares it with his family in the human world. We're here to participate in God's plan to make the world all he wants it to be and enjoy it with him. And eventually God showed us how we should do that. You know, Jesus is the ultimate example of representing God. He's called the image of the invisible God by Paul in Colossians 1.15 and the exact imprint of God in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. That's why we are told to imitate Christ in Romans 8.29 and in 2 Corinthians 3.18. I hope you're catching the drift in all that I'm saying. I hope you're catching on. Humans are basically God's administration. We are his counsel on earth. We are made to live in God's presence with his heavenly family. We were made to enjoy him and serve him forever. Now originally that was meant to also happen on earth. Eden was where heaven and earth intersected. God and his council members occupied the same space as humanity. Now God told Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was in, that's in Genesis 1.28. And that was the task of God's imagers. They would serve God as steward kings over creation. Humanity's job was to overspread the earth and extend Eden to the entire planet to grow the kingdom of God. Now that job's too big for two people. For two people... So God wanted Adam and Eve to produce children. You know, if Adam and Eve and their progeny had not failed by committing sin, the earth would have been gradually transformed into a global Eden. We would have had everlasting life on a perfect, perfected planet living with God and his spiritual family. And God loved humanity, so he forgave Adam and Eve, but the rest of humanity from that point on, was destined to follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps. We all sin, and we deserve death without God's intervention. Paul makes, points out that in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. We're mortal, and therefore we're sinners, and we need salvation. Now, the idea of God wanting us to join his divine family to be part of his council and live, us, and live in his presence help us understand some amazing things the Bible says. You know, in John 1.12, the Bible refers to believers as sons of God or children of God. 
That's also in John 11:52, Galatians 3:26. It's in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It explains why believers are described as being adopted into God's family. Galatians 4, Romans chapter 8. It explains why we are said to be heirs of God and his kingdom in Galatians, Titus, and James, and partakers of the divine nature according to 2 Peter 1.4. You can also see 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It explains why after Jesus returns, he says he will grant believers to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God, Revelation 2.7. And it explains why he's promised to share the rule of the nations with us. Revelation chapter 2 verses 26 to 28. And even share his own throne. Revelation 3.21. We move forward through this life. We're working our way back to Eden. Heaven will return to earth. That's what we'll be doing in the afterlife. Ruling in the new global Eden. Will be enjoying what Adam and Eve were originally intended to help produce. You know, everlasting life is not about playing harps and singing 24-7. It's about discovering and relishing the unblemished creation and all its unimaginable fullness alongside God himself, the risen Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and our fellow imagers, human and supernatural. Now, it may not seem like it, but a lot of life-changing ideas extend from all this. Living consciously as though our lives represent God and further His plans, even if we don't yet see that plan, will change the way we approach each and every day. To sum it up, you know, God's original plan was to make the whole earth like Eden. God wanted humans to participate in expanding His rule over all the earth as it was in Eden. He told Adam and Eve to have children become lords and stewards of creation. The command wasn't forgotten after the fall. In fact, it was repeated after the events of the flood in Genesis chapter 8 verse 17 and Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. Though Eden was lost, God intends that to be restored. Ultimately, his rule, his kingdom, will return in full when Jesus comes back and God creates a new heaven and earth. One that, if you look at Revelation 21 and 22, that new heaven and earth looks a lot like Eden. In the meantime, we can spread the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus everywhere. We can also represent God to everyone we meet and in every place. We're God's agents to restore Eden in the here and now. Looking forward to the day when Jesus brings that plan to a climax. Now, if we consciously think of ourselves as God's agents, his imagers, it means the decisions we make every day are important. They, they matter. Believers who are no longer lost in sin can fulfill God's plan with the help of the Holy Spirit. We're here to spread the goodness of life with God and tell people who need the gospel how they can enjoy that too. You know, our lives intersect with a lot of people. Their memory of those encounters ripples through their lives and through all the people whose lives they touch. You know, everyone on earth is a glimpse either of life with God or of a life without God. There's no middle ground. 
Now the knowledge that all humans are God's imagers should also cause us to see human life for the sacred thing that it is. This extends beyond ethical decisions that deal with life and death such as abortion. What we've learned has an impact on so much of how we see each other and relate to each other. Racism has no place in God's world. Injustice is, incom is incompatible with representing God. The abuse of power, whether it's at home, work, or in government, is ungodly. It's not how God dealt with his children in Eden, so it has no place in how we deal with fellow imagers. Last, representing God means every job that honors him is a spiritual calling. Every legitimate task can be part of moving our world toward Eden and blessing fellow Im imagers. Or not. God doesn't view people in ministry as more holy or special because of the, what they do. God cares about how each of us represents him where we are. We either stand against the darkness, share the life God wants everyone to ultimately experience, or we don't. The opportunity doesn't need to be spectacular. It just needs to be taken. Now, as spectacular as God's intention in Eden was, the vision died with equal speed. Now, only God is perfect. Freedom in the hands of imperfect beings, even divine ones, can have disastrous results. Free will in the hands of imperfect beings, whether divine or human, can also have, you know, that's an understatement that it can have disastrous results. Some catastrophes in the early chapters of the Bible, all of them in, involving both humans and supernatural beings, illustrate the point. You know, you can recall that God decided to share his authority with divine beings in, this, in, this, in, in, in the supernatural realm and human beings on earth. That was the backdrop of God's statement. Let us make man in our own image. Humans are imagers of God. I can't, it, I can't emphasize that enough. We share his authority and represent him as co-rulers. On one hand, it was a wonderful decision because free, free will is part of being like God. We couldn't be like him if we didn't have it. Without free will, concepts like love and self-sacrifice die. If you're merely programmed to love, there's no decision in it. Scripted words and acts aren't genuine. But there's a dark side to God's decision. Granting freedom to intelligent beings means they can and will make wrong choices or intentionally rebel. And that's guaranteed to happen since the only true perfect being is God. Because he's the only one we can really trust. This is why things could and did go wrong in Eden. You know, think about the setting in, in Eden. Adam and Eve are not alone. God is there with his counsel. Eden is the divine slash human headquarters for subduing the rest of the earth, spreading the life of Eden to the rest of the planet. But there's one member of the council isn't happy with God's plans. Just as we saw in Genesis 1, there are hints in Genesis 3 that Eden is home to other divine beings. In verse 22, after Adam and Eve sin, 
God says, Behold, the, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That phrase is the same sort of signpost that back in Genesis 1.26 when he created us in, according to God, our, our image. Now, the main character of Genesis 3, Genesis 3, the serpent, wasn't really a snake. He wasn't actually an animal. There's no effort to put him behind glass in a zoo would have been effective. And he wouldn't have been amused even if you tried. He was a divine being. Revelation 12.9 identifies him as the devil known as Satan. Now some Christians presume based on Revelation 12 verses 7 to 12 there was an angelic rebellion shortly after creation. Those verses read there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. And they did not they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them any longer in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who has called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. But that war in heaven described there is associated with the birth of the Messiah in chapter 12, verses 4 through 4 and 5 in verse 10 where it says and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth in order that whenever she gave birth to her child he could devour it and he she gave birth to a son a male child who was going to shepherd all the nations with an iron rod and her child was snatched away to God and to his throne and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his, of his Christ have come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Now the Bible gives no indication before the events in Eden that any of his imagers, human or divine, were opposed to God's will or were in rebellion. Circumstances changed dramatically in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent's crime was that he freely chose to reject God's authority. Now God has, had determined Adam and Eve would join the family business, so to speak. They would extend Eden on earth. But the enemy didn't want them there. He put himself in the place of God. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 13 it says... He said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of God. And he got a rude awakening. Since the serpent's deception led to Adam and Eve's sin, he was expelled from God's home. We can read about that in Ezekiel 28 verses 14 to 16. And he's banished to earth, cut down to the, cut down to the ground in biblical language. That's in Isaiah 14:12. Cut down to the ground, the place where death reigns, where life is not everlasting. Instead of being Lord of life, he became Lord of the dead, which meant that the great enemy now had claim over all humans since the event in Eden meant the loss of earthly immortality. Humanity would now need to be redeemed to have eternal life with God in a new Eden. 
Now the fallout from the actions of the serpent was a series of curses. The curses upon the serpent included just a bit of prophecy. God said Eve's offspring and that of the serpent would be at odds. Then Yahweh God said to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and between the woman and between your offspring and between her offspring. In verses 14 to 15 of Genesis 3. Who are Eve's offspring? That's an easy one. Jesus. And who are the serpent's offspring? Well, the answer to that's a little more abstract. The Apostle John gives us some examples, like the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus. You are of your father the devil, Jesus told them in John 8:44. Jesus called his betrayer Judas a devil in John 6:70. In context, then, the serpent's offspring is anyone who stands against God's plan, just as the serpent did. But it didn't take long for more trouble to arise. One of Adam and Eve's children became a murderer. Cain killed Abel, showing that he was of the evil one in 1 John 3.12. As he's called in 1 John 3.12. As the human population grew in the biblical story, so did evil. As described in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. But then comes another supernatural transgression that had great impact on the expansion of wickedness on earth. Uh, this time there's more than one rebel. The evil contagion spreading through humanity in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 is linked to the story in the preceding four verses about the sons of God fathering their own earthly children known as Nephilim. Now the Bible doesn't say much else in Genesis about what happened. But there are pieces of the story that show up elsewhere in the Bible and in Jewish tradition that the New Testament authors knew well and quoted in their writings. For example, Peter and Jude write about the angels who sinned before the flood, 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude verses 5 and 6. Some of what they say comes from Jewish sources that are outside the Bible. Peter and Jude say that the sons of God who committed this transgression were imprisoned under the earth. In other words, they're doing time in hell until the last days. They'll be part of God's final judgment, something the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And by the way, a quick aside about hell, you know, it's called the bottomless pit. Now, the only place that I know of you could have a bottomless pit is the center of the earth because every direction you go is up. Peter and Jude's sources are well known to Bible scholars. One of them was a book called First Enoch, and it was very popular with Jews of Jesus' day and also popular with Christians in the early church, even though it wasn't considered sacred and inspired. But Peter and Jude thought some of that content was important enough to include in the letters they wrote. Now these extra-biblical extra sources speculate that the sons of God either wanted to help humanity by giving them divine knowledge and then got sidetracked, or they wanted to imitate God by creating their own imagers. They also include an explanation for where demons come from. 
Now, demons are the departed spirits of dead Nephilim killed before and during the flood. They roam the earth harassing humans and seeking re-embodiment. In books of the Bible that follow Genesis, descendants of the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6 are called Anakim and Rephahim. That's in Numbers chapter 13 and in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Some of these Rephahim show up in the underworld realm of the dead in Isaiah chapter 14, where the serpent was cast down. New Testament writers are going to later call that place hell. Now these ideas show us that early Jewish writers understood the threat of Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. The sons of God were trying to reformulate Eden where the divine and the human coexisted in their own way. They presumed to know better than God about what should be happening on earth and just like the original enemy had. Now, alteration of God's plan to restore his rule ends up making a bad situation worse. So God, in effect, cleansed the world with a global flood. Now, not only was the episode of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, an echo of the seed of the serpent, its deliberate opposition to God, it was a prelude to worse, prelude to worse things to come. During the days of Moses and Joshua, some of the opponents they run into when trying to claim the promised land were scattered giant clans. You could read about that in Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3. Now these giants went by various names. Numbers 13, 32 to 33, they're called the Anakim, which I mentioned earlier. They are specifically said to be living descendants of the Nephilim, the offspring of sons of God back in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. Now the Old Testament tells us Israelites were fighting these oversized enemies up until David's time. David took out Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 and some of his men killed Goliath's brothers to finally end the threat in 2 Samuel chapter 21. The prophetic curse on the serpent and the divine transgression that follows are the early stages of what theologians call spiritual warfare which is the battle between good and evil. It's the long war against God and his people. And it's a war that's fought on battlegrounds in two realms, the seen and the unseen. Now, as strange as these stories are, they do teach us an important lesson. See, God has divine competition when it comes to human destiny. Opposition to God's will for earth and humanity is alive and well in both the spiritual realm and within humankind. But God has his own plans for how heaven and earth will be reunified and hostile interference won't go unpunished. Humanity is too valuable. God's own plan for his human family won't be altered or overturned. Now these passages also teach positive lessons. Now, while the long war against God can be traced back to God's decision to create imagers, human and divine, who would share his attribute of freedom, God is not the cause of evil. There's no hint in the Bible that God prodded his imagers to disobey, or that their disobedience was predestined. You know, 
I'm going to confuse you a little bit here, but the fact that God knows the future doesn't mean it's predestined to happen. We know that for, for certain from some passages like 1 Samuel 23 verses 1 to 14, which tells us about the time David saved the walled city of Keilah from the Philistines. After the battle, King Saul learned that David was in the city. Saul had been trying to kill David for some time out of paranoid fear that David was going to take his throne. So Saul sent an army to Keilah, hoping to trap David within the city walls. But David heard about Saul's plan, so he asked God, Will the leaders of Keilah betray me to him? And will Saul actually come as I have heard? O Lord God of Israel, please tell me. And the Lord said, He will come. Yes, they will betray you. David then did what any of us would do. He beat feet out of the city as fast as he could. That tells us why God's foreknowledge of events doesn't mean they are predestined. 1 Samuel 23 has God foreknowing two events that never actually took place. That God foreknew there would be divine rebellion and human failure doesn't mean he made those things happen. Foreknowledge doesn't require predestination. You know, we need to view the events of Adam's fall in this light. You know, God knew Adam and Eve were going to fail. He wasn't surprised. He knows all things, whether they're real and possible. But the fact that God could foresee the entrance of evil and rebellion into his world on the part of both humans and the divine rebel who seduced humanity to rebel does not mean God caused it. Now, we can and should view the evil we experience in our own lives and times in the same way. God foresaw the fall and he was ready with a plan to rectify it. He also knew we would be born sinners and that we'd fail a lot. You know, let's be honest with ourselves. But he didn't predestine those failures. When we sin, we need to own our sin. Because we sin because we choose to sin. We can't say God willed it, or that we had no choice because it was predestined. But God loved us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. He loved us despite knowing what we would do. You know, he not only gave us the freedom to sin, he gave us the freedom to believe the gospel and live for Jesus. God also knows, and we also know by experience, bad things happen to people. Bad things happen even to Christians. Evil is in the world because people and divine beings have the freedom to do evil. Our God isn't a twisted deity who predestines awful things or who needs horrible crimes and sins to happen so some greater plan of his works out well. You know, long and short of it, God doesn't need evil, period. His plans are going to move forward despite it. And his plans are going to overcome it, and he is ultimately going to judge the evil. 
Now you might ask, why doesn't God just eliminate evil right now? If you ask that question, think about your reasoning for it. Because for God to eliminate evil, he'd have to eliminate his imagers, human and divine, who are not perfect like he is. Yeah, that would solve the problem of evil. But it would mean that God's original idea to, you know, to create other divine agents and human beings to live and rule with him, everything he's done up until this point, was a huge mistake. And if you don't remember anything from this lesson, remember this. God does not make mistakes. You know, we also might wish that God had never given us humans freedom. Where would we be then? You know, in choosing to give us freedom, God chose not to make us mindless slaves or robots. That's the alternative to having free will. But since freedom is an attribute we share with God, without it, we couldn't actually be imagers of God. Now, God is not a robot. He made us like himself. And that wasn't a mistake either. God loved the idea of humanity too much to make the alternative decision. So he devised a means to redeem humanity, to redo Eden, and to wipe away every tear. Revelation 7.17, Revelation 21.4 Now, our look at the long war against God is underway. God has a battle strategy. But the situation is going to get worse before he makes his first move. Now God's statement, let us make man in our image, means that he and the ones he's speaking to share something in common. And whatever that is, humans will also share it at the moment God creates them. Not only are we like God in some way, we are also like the divine beings of his counsel. Now that something is communicated by the phrase image of God. And next time, we're going to talk about what the image of God really is. I look forward to that study. I hope you are looking forward to it too. And this has been The Perfect Puzzle. Thank you for listening.